Blog Talk Radio. Big time. 
Um, the company has said no travel for any reason on any public form of transportation, mandatory work from home. And what's interesting is um, we aren't even allowing our, our salespeople to have interactions. They have to do everything over the phone and over Skype and that kind of thing. So it's kind of unprecedented, you know, to be totally grounded like this. And, you know, I talk to people about the thing is after 9-11, we all knew who the enemy was, and we were all scared and everything like that, but the enemy was identifiable. You can't identify this enemy. This enemy could be on a piece of metal you touch. It could be on a cardboard box that Amazon dropped off at your house. It's a very weird feeling because, again, it's one thing when you could rally around a known enemy and say, okay, that's the enemy over there, and we have to guard against that. But you can't see this thing. And like Frank said earlier, somebody could be completely fine, you know, going about their business and be a carrier, and you have no idea. And, you know, that if you're in the city and you, and you press that button to get the green walk light, you, it could be on there. You don't know. And it's a very weird time. And here's the thing. There's billions of people in the world, uh, and the majority of us are not going to get tested uh, at, at any point. And apparently, I, you know, some of us could go the entire time that we have the disease without feeling any symptoms. So, you know, how, how am I supposed to be able to protect against this whole thing? I fear hand sanitizing isn't even something that you, you can do all that, that much. Uh, I want to loop back around before we, uh, we go back to Frank. Uh, Mike, what, you know, wh where are you in Brooklyn with all of this? I mean, you are an essential worker. I am. I have to be out there, so taking my precautions. Uh, I'm trying to remain compliant, and what do I mean by that? Not letting my imagination run away with me, you know. Uh, I love a good conspiracy theory, and I have to question a lot of things going on. Uh, so instead of going off on a tangent, I will merely say this with regards to information in our education and what's going on. Maybe as recently uh, as 50 years ago, if not a little less, but certainly 45 and 50 years ago and, and, and forever before that, all your news outlets however which way you received your news, uh, be it TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, you name it, that or those outlets had exponential numbers of ownership, enterprise, individual, whatever have you. Today, all our news is being disseminated and decided upon by roughly six entities, Disney being one of them, obviously, and, and you can certainly, uh, you know, figure out the rest. My point is, do you really, and, you know, my, my figure might be off, but for argument's sake, do you really trust six people to sit in a room and decide what it is that we're going to hear? Man, oh, man. That was powerful. <laughs> um, Frank. And, you know. and a part of the reason also is that these media people, it's, it, 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 you can't tell the opinion news from the, uh, the, uh, the real news anymore. 
Well, that that really doesn't exist. You gotta decipher it. You know, it's it's all a code, basically. I I, I just Frank, I I sometimes just feel that we need to get distracted, you know, from all of this, and kind of just you know take a breath, even if it has coronavirus in the air, uh, and and go about your day. But um, it's hard to do that. But you know, this is the first time you're on our show. So I want to dig a little deeper into who the Mets fan is. That is Frank Fleming. So if you could just go ahead and give us some of your uh, your baseball history and your overall history of, of where where you uh, you developed this this passion. Well, I've been a Mets fan since the mid '80s, uh, around the time that uh, Dwight Gooden came up. Uh, I was I was ten years old when they won the World Series in uh, '86, so I, I do have memories of that, and I've been a Mets fan ever since. To many, 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 many heartbreaking, disappointing years. Of course, I got famous going to opening day. When the friggin' frames, of course, decided to uh, not work. So one of the things that I loved about the uh, the, the uh, pre-interview video that you sent me was <coughs> I liked the uh, the fact that you said they've done to you much much worse since then. So what what are some mm-hmm. other horrifying uh, New Jersey transit stories you can tell us? Oh, well, you see it all the time. Uh, we actually have uh, someone uh, from New Jersey Transit that, uh, that's uh, facing charges for uh, vehicular homicide because she, uh, a guy tried to get back on the bus to get something he left. She closed the door on him and dragged him and killed him. Well, that is uh, – I had not seen that, but that, that – uh... <laughs> That's New Jersey Transit for you, for sure. So, so what was the, uh, the the first Met game that you went to? What was uh, who's your favorite player? Uh, maybe Mike Piazza is my favorite player of all time. Uh, I would say the first the first Met game I went to was in 1985. It was a one nothing win. Bruce Bereni got the win uh, against the Reds. The first weekend of the season. Uh, Gary Carter hit a homer for the only run for the game, and uh, Pete Rose actually got three hits for the right for the, Roy- for the Reds. All right, all right. So I'm gonna uh, go around the horn here, uh, starting with Mike. If you have any questions uh, for Frank specifically, I'd like to know the immediate reaction of your coworkers upon that initial ring. <laughs> That's what I want to know because that always interests me at work as well. Yeah, a lot of them agree to me. They know how bad New Jersey Transit is. They uh, some of them have to take that damn uh, New Jersey Transit, and they see what a <laughs> fucking disaster it is. It 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 it, 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 it truly is the absolute worst. <laughs> there, there it is, uh, Rich. Well, Frank, I'll, I'll bring the experience back to the baseball field. In New Jersey Transit, you know, they, I think we're pretty aware that all mass transit can suck at times, right? 
you know, the the, the New Transit, uh, even when uh, New York started scrubbing down the trains, they asked New Jersey Transit, are you going to scrub down your trains? They went, you think we're going to scrub down the trains? And then they had, like, uh, there's talk now that several New Jersey Transit employees might have had uh, COVID-19 and been spreading it. So, basically, if you sit in the train in, uh, or in New Jersey, you're probably screwed. I mean, uh, it's almost like you can hear the count from uh, Sesame Street going, ha, 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 ha. Zero. <laughs> Zero fucks given by New Jersey Transit. <laughs> That's great. That's you know, great. it's funny because uh, I, I actually used the count in a in a gift today. So that's funny. It's uh, serendipitous. Um, but Frank, give us. Let's think back to the nineteen season, the last year. Give us a moment, if you could think of one off the top of your head, that drove you the most crazy and sent you into an absolute. You know, an absolute anger fit. Like, what, what, what one thing stands out? Was it a Mickey Calloway decision? Was it a uh, Edwin Diaz blown save? Share with us. I would have to say the two of them. When, uh, when, they, uh, when uh, Edwin blew it, Diaz blew that set, the sixth one lead in the ninth, and after the game, Mickey Calloway said that uh, Edwin Diaz had electric stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. I would say. Um he gave up a hard, a, a bullet double, a hard hit single, and a home run. That's electric stuff. It, and give me right, another one. Exactly. What's your other one? Uh, let's see. The meltdown in Philadelphia when Mike Fiat, like Mike Francesca went nuts. You know what? I'm with you on that. That's the one where they got swept four, and it was a Thursday afternoon game, and they were looking like they they scored in the ninth. They had a three to one lead, and then Diaz blew it in the bottom ninth. That drove me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I there there were I, you know it ended so well, and I was just thinking about it today, Mike. How you and I were standing next to each other and had such joy on our face, like the Mets had just won the World Series when Dominic Smith hit that, that homer to give us 86 wins, like 1976. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's like you, you want to cherish those moments. And then I, I had completely forgotten about that sweep in Philly. Yeah, you're right about that. You know, sometimes you walk into a ballpark, or at least I'll speak for myself, sometimes I walk into a ballpark, Mets ballpark, but I bring a lot of crap with me, you know. And that day, the last game of the season, you and I attended. I, I left my baggage outside, you know. So uh, the the moment, you know, really, really hit home when Dom Smith hit hit that home run. And I'm just, I, I, I'm just emphasizing, I guess, you know, watching baseball, watching these Mets in particular. Uh, sometimes with the clear mind is <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> So, Frank, what was your thoughts and feelings about the 2020 season, uh, you know, if if, if there is even one? I don't have potential, which probably means it's all going to go to hell. There's going to be uh, nothing for uh, – they said that they said, uh, no one wants to shut down sports for two years. 
You know, Rich, it's going to be the uh, the best season the Mets never had. The Blasio and uh, AOC say this is the the best way to have life. Is nothing. Mind your labor and pay all your taxes. So what were some of your other favorite moments of last year? You know, at at, at a certain point, you just got to go back to living your fucking life. Well, hopefully we're able to do that, you know? And we just stop living in memories. And and, and the thing, though, about it, and Frank, have you listened to any of the, uh, um, you know, some of these old games that they're playing, and right now they're playing, you know, March Madness? Uh, I haven't really watched it, watched any of them yet, but it's just driving me nuts. I'm going crazy over here. Hey, Rich, have you listened to any of those those rebroadcasts uh, of WFAN Westwood One's doing? No, I, I, sports to me, if if I know the outcome, I, I I just can't watch it again. I I could watch highlights for sure, you know, and enjoy some great moments, but I can't sit there and watch. Like I know they showed every Met win from 2019. I can't sit there and watch games, a full game, when I know how it's going to end. I, I just can't do it. I give people credit if they can do it. So, you know, here's the thing, though, uh, with the, the first one they did, and especially for me not being into uh, men's basketball or college sports in general. Um, and and I'm wondering, uh, Mike, if you've listened to any of it, but they, they uh, replayed Michigan – State versus Indiana, 1979, when uh, Magic Johnson took on Larry Bird, and I still, I still don't know what the outcome of that that was, and I wasn't able to listen to the entire thing. But it was such fascinating stuff hearing hearing a broadcast from from back then. And you know, the next night they they did 2018 when a 16 beat a one, um, but that was that definitely was not as interesting, even if it's the only time it's ever happened. Bird and Magic was some hot stuff back in college, so I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who doesn't know the outcome. Go back, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't been listening or watching the games that you speak of, but, I, you know, me, since for years now, I've been on YouTube, and I always, you know, throw on a vintage game, 1930s, 1940s, a regular season game, a playoff game, what have you. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, two days ago, I listened to the 1934 All-Star game, and got to listen to Babe Ruth taking that bat, you know. So, uh, but as far as no sports, you know, this is most certainly strange. You know, we've never been through this before, uh, not uh, in its entirety, you know, a sport being on strike here, a lockout there, sure, but nothing like this. Uh, but I will say, you know, boredom is not one of my problems. Uh, I have things to do. I have to work on my projects, you know. I... Uh, Got newspapers all over the place that are just waiting to be cut up and put into scrapbooks and, and things of that nature, you know. So it allows me to work on my other projects. You know, I'm scouring the land for dead people, and that's all I'll reveal about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I appreciate maybe the time away from the, sports, uh, actually. Monty Python in the Holy Grail. Say again? Monty Python in the Holy Grail. Thank <laughs> uh, but it, it really is. But uh, you know the lack of live There's sports. The beginning part, uh, the beginning part when they're when they're dealing with the plague, and the guys going down the street, bring out your dead. 
Is it a British swallow or an American swallow? <laughs> that was that was hysterical. But uh, like I said, it allows me to catch up on some of the other things that are uh, taking a back seat lately. I'm feeling fine. And he's knocking out. <laughs> this, this is where this is where we uh, we show off how we are a full service podcast. Frank, I know we only got you for uh, ten more minutes, so I want to uh, I want to see your take on on something that we that we uh, we do every episode that we have a number if, and it's not a special. Uh, and um, a faux pas has left us with um, uh, forty five and forty seven to do in terms of the Mets who have worn that number in their history that corresponds with their episode number. So we're going to start with 45, and before I, I – I'm going to give you the complete floor with this one. Uh, if, if you uh, want to go to ultimatemets.com and check out the uniform numbers, but I'm going to read them off to you and see if uh, they invoke any memories to you. So these are the players to wear 45 in their history. Ron Locke. Tug McGraw, Daryl Sutherland, Tug McGraw again, Tug Bill McGraw Connors, third time Tug McGraw, <laughs> Rick Baldwin, Butch Metzger, Jeff Reardon, Bob Gibson, Brett Gaff, John Candelaria, Edward, uh, Edwin Mark Nunez, Candelaria Mark Carrion. Mark Carrion stunk. Uh, well, well, John Candelaria <laughs> was a good pitch for the Pirates, but only briefly paid for the Mets. Tug McGraw was probably the best to wear number 45. Uh, you got to right. believe, of course. Mark Carrion, good pinch hitter, but he just could be poor outfielder, but he was never good when he, you put him in the starting lineup. Right, exactly. Uh, do you see any of these? Do you have it in front of you? Do you see any of these other names? No, just keep going over to them. Uh, I'll tell you who oh, I yeah, remember. Definitely. Paul Gibson. Mar, uh, Ma- Mauro Gozo, Gozo probably. Jerry Mauro Gozo, Gozo, I think he was uh, a pitcher. He was a pitcher. They uh, called him Goose Gozo. He was terrible. He was. <laughs> oh, and I love these names. These random terrible uh, uh, player names. Except the names are amazing. I mean, the actual names are amazing. Uh, even if they weren't on a baseball level. Jerry Depoto. Randy Neiman, John Franco. So yeah, it looked like Randy Neiman wore it briefly uh, in uh, from 1997 to 1998, and he was probably a coach by then. Uh, um, uh, anybody have a take on that? He was a bullpen uh, coach. Yeah, right. And then I would say some other the other ones that you you definitely think about. And I, I think there's actually some pretty prominent names in, in the history of of this team to round it out, other than Justin Hampson, and that's uh, John well, Franco, uh, Pedro Martinez, Jason Isreagin, uh, and Zach uh, Wheeler. Yeah, the last few have been really good. Uh, but yeah, the, the 45 has been uh, been a, a good number for the Mets most for the most part. It's not one of those that's so like on, really. Sorry, go ahead. The ones that didn't stay that were just like horrifyingly bad. We've had some numbers right. and they're just like that. That you wanted to blow, that scorched the number. Right. Exactly. Uh, so we're gonna move on to forty-seven, and we got um, 
starting with back uh, 1962 and all the way through 1964, Jay Hook. Uh, but I know you don't go that far back. But but you, I, I know from your experience, though, you do have a lot of knowledge on that era. Jay Hook was actually, uh, after the Mets started 0-9, lost the first nine games ever. Jay Hook was the first Met to win a, uh, to get a win. That's right. That is right. Uh, it's a funny name here um, on the briefly on the 1964 team, Tom Sturdivant. Don't know anything about him. <laughs> Daryl Sutherland also wore it in 1964. Marty Cornejo. In, uh, that's a nice. Marty that's, a, that's a 78. Do you, any, do, you, do you know anything about him? No. Jesse Jesse well, Jesse Roscoe, of course, you know how you know him. Of course. But on his of knees, course. Do you have any, do you have, have any, green, thing, uh, any memories about Jesse? The, the, last, the last out in the 86 World Series. Last out in the 86 NLC, NLCS. Could have been the NLCS MVP. Yeah. Yeah. Wally Whitehurst, Mike Draper, Jason Jackson. Wally Whitehurst. This is one of those. This is like funny num- uh, numbers. Wally Whitehurst was, was a terrible pitcher. Wally Whitehurst sucked. <laughs> yeah, and he played uh, uh, July 17, 1989 through September 26, 1992. He wore that uniform. He, uh, yeah, definitely a bad era for the Metsians. So, <laughs> the Metsians, excuse me. Um, Derek Wallace, Joe McEwing. Derek Wallace was a relief pitcher, yep, I remember him. Do you have any Joe McEwing memories? Uh, Super Joe, uh, utility man. Uh, he wasn't a, a starter, but he was like one of these type of people you could play off the bench and he could play on his any position. He was a very good sub. Yeah, it, and and uh, his name has come up with uh, potential, you know, times for the Mets have th- uh, talked about managing, which has come up a little too yeah. often lately. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Tom Glavin. Uh, well, he really wanted to get on vacation. <laughs> he really did, uh, decided to just completely implode. Yeah, he did. I, I like the way you said it. he really wanted to uh, go on vacation. Like he was like the entire time he was just a a uh, a mole. <laughs> yeah. Casey Fossum. Nope. Ah, uh, I don't remember him on the map. I don't just two. Uh, April twenty first, two thousand nine through April twenty sixth, two thousand nine. He must have been a pitcher. I'll have to uh, open that one in a different tab. Let's see. Uh, Casey Fossum was indeed a pitcher. Pitched four innings for the two thousand nine New York Mets. Before they really imploded, um, Hitsunori Takahashi. I remember him. He's another pitcher, I believe. Left-hander. I, I, you reliever. know, I, I kind of liked the way. I, I really liked the way he threw. In general, he he kind of was still a fun person to watch during you know pretty miserable. It, it you know a, a, a year that fell apart. Yeah, he wasn't awful. Miguel Batista, 
uh, Aaron Laffey, Andrew Brown, Jose Valerde, Hansel Robles. And I, I would say Hansel Robles really rounds this one out the best. Other, you know, yeah. Drew Gagg. Well, Gag- you remember uh, 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 Nelson Figueroa meeting me on the friggin' uh, and ten line. What about Nelson Figueroa? He was on SNY for a while. He game post game show. Um, right, in the, no, when he was doing the post game show. What about what in correlation to Hansel Robles? I mean, well, you he was one of the people that wore forty seven. Uh. Can Mike? What do you think about that, uh, Rich? Do you guys have? It's not his name's not here. Yes, he was. He was like I, this next to the, uh, the, the the one of the last names you mentioned. We'll have to. I'm gonna check that. Uh, did I say Nelson Figueroa? I'll look that yeah, up. I, I don't recall. I don't think I did. Yes, you did. You said Nelson Figueroa. No, no, I said um, no Nelson Figueroa. I thought you said him like two names before Hanzo Robles. Two names before Hanzo Robles was Andrew Brown. <laughs> what well, I could have sworn you said uh, Nelson Figueroa. Or, Maybe Ho- or Jose Batista. Valverde. But, but yeah, maybe 47, heard... uh, 45 was definitely a better number than yes, 47, I would say. So, so Frank, uh, we usually, before I let you go, we usually uh, uh, round it out for our last word. And so I want to uh, hand it off to you before you go for your last word. And it's basically like either a sentence or just a word that, that you think sums up what, you know, you're feeling and, and uh, regarding the Mets and right now otherwise. <laughs> I just can't wait till we get the Mets. I'm just tired of uh, this whole, whole fucking uh, quarantine shit. Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, you know can't say it better myself. Frank, you're welcome back anytime. I appreciate you uh, jo- joining us right now. Anytime you want to come back, just give us a call. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Later. Thanks, thanks. Frank. All right. Bye. Thank you, Frank. All right, bye. So, guys, um, you know, do we go with coronavirus, or do you guys just want to dive right deep into this uh, this list? You're the host. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rich, uh, I'm going to pass it off to you for 45. I just take it away. Just uh, you, you've you've seen the list. Yeah, so for 45, I mean, it, it, it's hard to not – they're really two guys, right? It's Tug, and, um, you know, Tug was a great man you know, from Mike and my era. And, um, you know, he, he you know he was a starter, and they made him a reliever. Then he was kind of back and forth, and he settled into that role. as you know the, He was a fireman. We've all seen pictures of Tug with a fireman's hat in, in the clubhouse. You know, we all know about you got to believe, 73 – um, just an eccentric character. You know, at one point he was asked if he preferred grass or artificial turf, and he said he prefers grass because he's never smoked artificial turf. Um, you know, Tug was a space cadet. He, he was out there. He was refreshing, and um, and then he was gone. 
you know, the Mets got John Stearns back for him, and I forget who else. Um, so they got some value in return, but, um, you know, how can you not think about Tug when you think of 45? You know, we lost Tug way too early. Um, then there's Franco and Martinez and Wheeler. So, you know, so it is a good number. Um, I talked about Franco last week, so I don't, I don't want to say any more about him. Um, I'm a huge Pedro Martinez fan. I think one of the reasons Beltron signed with the Mets, other than the Benjamins, uh, and when the Yankees didn't offer him a contract, was the presence of Pedro because the Mets were starting to establish themselves. You know, they were, they were turning a corner. Um, Pedro was a key signing for them, and which I fully believe encouraged Beltron to sign as well in that same winter. Um, so Pedro had a lot to do with the turnaround of the Mets. Obviously, he had a lot of injuries and wasn't the guy that the Mets wanted to get, but he did help re- reestablish that nice run from 05 through 08, which obviously had some, had some down moments, but Pedro was a big part of that, and, uh, and I loved Pedro. Absolutely loved him. Loved him as a Red Sox, loved him as a Met. And Zach, you know, um, probably one of Sandy Alderson's better trades, you know, to turn Beltron into Zach Wheeler. Um, Zach, you know, w- was a bit inconsistent, and he, we lost him for two seasons, and when he came back, the last season and a half he was a Met, he was a very reliable starter, and he's gone now. Now he's in the division, he's going to haunt us, right? So th- th- that's my take on 45. Mike? I was heartbroken when they traded Tug McGraw. That was my first real major heartbreak as a Mets fan. Then came Rusty, and by the time Tom Seaver was traded, I I had already developed some callus, if you know what I mean. Uh, Heartbreaking. You know, Brian Wright put it, whom we had last week on the show, author of the book, New York Mets All-Time All-Stars, he nailed it because the second half of that 73 season, there was nobody better than Tug McGraw. Uh, He was... He was superb. Uh, go back and look at the second half of that season uh, on baseball reference or what what have you. But uh, marvelous performance. Sorry to see him go. He's on he's on my Mount Rushmore uh, of of Metsian guys, you know. Uh, definitely. John Franco, I ran into him into uh, on the streets twice. Actually, once in the Staten Island Mall, and another time. Uh, right here on 86th Street in Brooklyn. I uh, have his autograph hanging right in front of me as we speak. And Zach Wheeler, number 45, I wish he was still here. That's all I can really say. I wish he was still here. I think his better days are still ahead. And I'll make uh, an honorable mention of Jeffrey Erden. I wouldn't call him the one that got away. Uh, nobody really thought of him that way, but he was a, a hard thrower for his you know, his few seasons with the Mets. And there was a point in time in his career where he was the all-time saves leader. You know, so three cheers for that, I guess. Number 45. I absolutely love Pedro Martinez. And he's one of those players, and I was saying it before we got on air, you know, that I think earlier, that, um, it, it, you know, he's one of Obviously, didn't have his best years with the Mets, but you know, it's just so awesome. And obviously, he didn't falter uh, at all. He obviously wasn't his Red Sox self, but he uh, performed admirably. 
And it's just great that you can look back and see that type of player in your uniform, whether that's him or Willie Mays, you know. Rich, I kind of, like, was, was uh, grouping both of those players together. Uh, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, uh, Pedro is, you know, was uh, a modern-day Willie Mays, other than, like, the New York connection. Yeah, I, I see that. I mean, the Mets got both late in their career, and they both um, were, you know, they're both obviously did their best work somewhere else and, and came to the Mets. And, um, you know, Willie Mays' case, he was a part of the 73 run. In Pedro's case, he was, you know, part of the rebirth of the, of the franchise in, in the, you know, 2005 through eight period. So I see your point. Yeah, and another thing too, Mike, one of the coolest parts is that in his Hall of Fame speech, it sounded like he said he's a Mets fan. Like, that's us. That's us Mets fans when he talked about Queens. He certainly gave that impression. I, I think he enjoyed his years here uh, very much uh, with one particular person, person withstanding. His 2005 season was outstanding, after which injuries and you know, a couple of things he mentions in that book, I guess, speak for themselves. But I think he had a lot of fun here. You know, he's one of those uh, interactive fellows. He loves the back and forth with the fans, just like Ricky Henderson used to do. That, you know, I, I'm glad you went there again. Uh, that Ricky Henderson always had a thing about, you know, back and forth with the fans. Pedro, I noticed, was the same way. Uh, from being at Shea, from being at Yankee Stadium, uh, I, I remember both players in the outfield, Ricky in left field, Pedro in the right field corner near the Mets bullpen, uh, doing almost the same thing. And, you know, the thing that really stands out to me about Tug McGraw, uh, just from a visual in my head for somebody who is not, uh, uh, who did not experience him firsthand, was just that, that, that glove slap. Uh, uh, I'll go to you first, Rich. You know, that just seems to be his signature uh, once he locked down the safe. Yeah, he, he said it was his way of acknowledging somebody in the crowd, Mike. Am I right on that? He said it started with, I think might have been his wife or somebody else, that as he would come off the mound, he would do that as his way of acknowledging that person, and then it became his signature. And um, And, again, it was part of Tug's eccentricity, that made him so lovable. Um, and, you know, there aren't many people around baseball who hated Tug. I mean, he just, he, was, he wasn't showing anybody up. You know, he, he didn't, he was able to manage that line between having fun on the field and showing people up. He never crossed it. Um, and uh, he was just a, a beloved figure in Major League Baseball. And like I said, it just, just went way, way too soon. Yeah. And it uh, seems as if the yeah yeah he did that that is for sure and, and it seems as if uh, he passed away. when was it two thousand three I think it was three two thousand three might have been three or four yeah and I I'll um look it up. I, I so does he own you gotta believe or or do the to the Mets, and I don't. I, I mean, the Mets does Tug McGraw as a Met, really? You know, because he did like there is that rivalry thing with the Phillies with it, because he he has a legacy uh, strongly 
split, I think, between the two. And, and, and it's really hard to say that he's either a bigger Met or a bigger Philly. I think it's a straight-up split after that. And I know that it's kind of a, a little bit of needling, and it doesn't seem like the Philly fan has taken – I guess I'll go to you, Rich, first, actually um, – like, has really taken – like, he understands that it's, gen- like, generally thought about as a Mets thing. Uh, but, you know, in their – I think it was either spring training or even in their clubhouse somewhere, next to Tug, it says you got to believe. Yeah, and there was that big thing a couple of years ago Jeez, maybe it was more than a couple. Where the Phillies started with, you know, the gotta believe and, and tug and all that. Remember the Mets fans got crazy with it because they're like, that's a Mets thing, and you know, you're he, he never did that as a Philly, and you're just, you know, you're you're taking it from us. So there was that. But you know, in terms, you know, Sam, just to support what you said, ten years as a Philly, nine as a Met, ninety-four saves as a Philly, eighty-six as a Met. So it's pretty well split down the middle, as you said, um, and. You know, he was on the mound in 1980 when the Phillies won it. I believe he got Willie Wilson as the last out. Um, so it's First hard. World you know, Championship. Right. I mean, as much as we want to own Tug for our very own, you can't really say that he didn't have a, a strong impact with the Phillies. I mean, he he was on the mound. They won their first ever world championship. So it's hard to, you know, you can't really say that. It was pretty evenly split between the two organizations. And, um, and you know, I just it, – it's it's a shame that he had to go – you know, he had a great 1969, too, by the way, you know, 9-3 and three record. Um, so, you know, as Mike said, it was it was the first – you know, Mike, I'm going to have to say I'm in lockstep with you there in terms of the heartbreak. Um, you know, Tug probably first, Rusty second, and, and Seaver third. Yeah, I'm there. So I wanted to go around since, you know, we do have uh, – we're going to – try to fit this into a nice tight hour uh and we do have two numbers just to, to kind of uh you know distract us from coronavirus as i like to say messian style um so you know it's funny when some of these names like randy neiman pop up um you, you know because you, you don't think about him as 45 and yet you know um it, it's it's such a thorough list that it catches that uh mike i'll go to you first Randy Neiman, you know, uh, journeyman pitcher as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he was there for the good times, so he's always going to stand out. Uh, just like anybody on those 75 and 76 teams, to me, stand out, no matter how good or or not. So, you know, he's got that going for, him for, for a younger generation, you know. But me, you know, there's names that supersede his in the bullpen. And unfortunately, he was effective. Don't get me wrong, and he was likable. Uh, but there's other guys who just get more notoriety than him. Sorry, I had a little bit of a mute malfunction. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, it, 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 generally speaking, Rich, you know, when you have a um, a, a championship caliber team. Everybody's going to be, you know, at worst, you know, pretty okay. Yeah, you know, Randy Neiman. I, I remember one thing about him, Mike and Sam. You might remember this, but in the '86, um, I, I believe it was after they beat Houston for the NLCS, they were interviewing Frank Cashin in, in the clubhouse, and <laughs> Cashin gets. You remember this? He gets. This is a great story. With, yeah. 
right? And so Cash is on Mike. You know, I believe it was Tim McCarver interviewing him or Keith Jackson, one of the problem McCarver. And, um, and all of a sudden he gets to the big stream of champagne and he's drenched, you know, and all that. And Cashin didn't like it. He was clearly upset by it. And he looked over, and it was Randy Neiman who had doused him with the champagne. Cashin looks back into the camera and says, isn't it interesting that the people who contribute the least are the ones to squirt the champagne? Remember that? Yep. <laughs> That's like a, oh, my God, you know? That's so where, was, where was Randy Neiman on the 87 team? Yeah, right. Randy Neiman was gone. I mean, I believe I'll look it up here, but yeah, he he didn't he wasn't a Met after that season. And um and you're right, he was a bullpen coach, obviously long after the cash in uh the cash in era, but that that's I, I can't associate anything other than that to Randy Neiman. Well, it, he seemed to have left an indelible impression with some folks, uh, Mike, in the uh the franchise. Hey look, if you play for a world champion, that's gonna happen. In 1986, he appeared in, you know, over 30 games. So, you know, he he he's a contributor. Uh, he certainly didn't uh, hinder them from winning a championship. Uh, I'll say that much for him. So I had to go uh, get in motion. Um, uh, you know, like we like to say, on location in Brooklyn, heading to my apartment right now. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, pass it on to you, Rich, uh, real quick, before I get a chance to glance again to uh, between 45 and 47. Just take it away. Well, you know, 45 I think we've covered. Uh, you know, moving to 47, you know, you, you look at um, Jesse Orozco. I mean, how can you, if you're a Mets fan you know, of, of anything over 40, how can you not think about Jesse Orozco? I mean, um you know, I'm looking, you know, Mike said he was looking at the autograph of John Franco. Well, what I'm looking at is my case with my bobbleheads in it. And the front row of the middle shelf, the one that catches your eye the most, the front row is Jesse Orozco, Keith Hernandez, Tom Seaver. And Jesse Orozco is in that, you know, famous pose on his knees. So, I mean, how can you think of anything else with number 47? It's like Jesse Orozco wore it and who? You know, that that's the kind of thing you look at 47. Uh, but then there were some other folks, and um, so you look at it, and, and Joe McEwing, love Joe McEwing. How can you not love Joe McEwing? He played every position, like Frank said, you know, gritty kind of a guy, kind of a guy who gets his uniform dirty, love Joe McEwing. Uh, he's in the White Sox organization now. His name keeps popping up for manager roles with the Mets and others, and he hasn't materialized for him yet. Glavin, you know, I know his name is a four-letter word in Metsville, um, I never hated Glavin as a Met. I, I thought he was a mercenary. He came for the money, and sure he did, absolutely. Um, he had basically no personality. He went out there, and he looked like he was here because he's being highly paid to do a job. Okay, you know what? I don't, I don't want these guys to entertain me. I want these guys to win. And Glavin, you know, gave you a workman-like five, five years as a Met. And uh, one, two, three, four, five, five years as a Met. Um, obviously, it ended really badly, you know, with the whole are you devastated thing. And, you know, beyond that, just the game itself, last game of, of 07. So it didn't end well. But I, I don't hate Tom Glavin. You know, to a lot of Met fans, you say his name and they go crazy. I, mean, I don't. 
You know, it wasn't his fault that Jeff Wilpon threw a boatload of money at him. What would you do? I would take it, too. He took the money. He, he really wanted to be a brave, but he took the money like most people would. He was very, again, businesslike. Okay? He doesn't have to be Jerry Seinfeld. You know, he did his job, did the best he could. And he had a really bad game at a really bad time, but I don't hate the guy for it. So, um, you know, looking at the rest of this list, um, yeah, you know, Marty Cornejo you talked about before. I remember he was from the New York area, Mike, I believe, and um, starting pitcher, very run-of-the-mill. Um, so, yeah, that's about all I have on that. You know, a lot of non-specific, you know, very, very un- unspectacular names here. Um, you know, guys like Jose Valverde, you know, that's had Papa Grande in 2014 and Kyle Farnsworth, you know, as, out of the bullpen. And they were both DFA'd by May. Remember that? So, um, and then Drew Gagneau, thank God he won't be back. I believe he's in Japan. That's my 47. Yeah. Uh, Korea and uh, Japan, they're playing baseball now, aren't they? Yes, they are. I believe they are. Um so I'm looking up more. Now I'm curious. I thought he was from the New York area. If you give me one second, I um, will verify that. Um, so Marty Cornejo. No, it's wrong. You're from Kansas. So scratch that. <laughs> not, uh, even, Mike, not even like the yeah. I'll pick where, it up. Where did you, Rich? Wait, wait a second, Mike. Sorry for a second. Rich, where did you say he was from? He's from Kansas. I thought for some reason he had a New York connection. I, I thought he did, but I guess not. So you he's mean from, he's uh, from Manhattan? He's from Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah, right. Now he's from. I wish I could even say that. He's from Wellington, Kansas. I don't know where that is. Good luck with that one. Mike, take it away. The thing about Glavin, you know, I'd have to give you give this to you in two two parts. One as a baseball fan, one as a Mets fan. As a baseball fan, you know, I wanted to be there for a bunch of his starts. I knew he was going to win number 300 here. I knew he was going to a hall, to the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, and I appreciate that because I'm a baseball fan. You know, and I, I want to take all these guys in. It doesn't matter to me if it's Yankee Stadium or City Field. Obviously, I'm a Met fan. But I appreciate the fact that I live in a city with two teams and I get to see twice as many players that, you know, one-team cities wouldn't ordinarily get to experience. So in that respect, you know, I wanted to make sure I had my pictures and that I got to see him at Shea Stadium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as a player, I wanted no part of him. Uh, he pitched up to my expectations, which weren't very high, Uh my problem with him, not that he was necessarily necessarily over the hill at that point and his best days were behind him, it's just that uh these pitchers who, who pitch off the change up, if that's if you know, if your change up is your primary pitch, I have a big issue with that. And I really have no use for that. You know, he had a great career but you know, thank you but no thank you. Uh otherwise Jesse, Jesse ah, Jesse was great. You know, and and people knew we were on to something uh, by 83. I think it was August. He had one Pitcher of the Month, National League Pitcher of the Month. 
you know, and, and by that point, you know, a lot of things were coming together. Strawberries, uh, Strawberry was up, Hernandez was here, Jesse was shining in the bullpen. Uh, so a lot of things about that 83 season, you know, were coming together for the Mets, and Jesse was definitely a part of it as early as then. You know, and then, of course, he went on to become a world champion with the Mets. Uh, who else is on this list? Uh, nobody else I'd really, you know, like to spend any uh, any length of time on. Jerry Kuzman Ward during his rookie season, you know, but 36 is 36. I, I wanted to cover this with Joe McEwing, though. Um, does, is there any correlation between him and Jeff McNeil? And I'll start with you, Rich. Doesn't it, like, when you're thinking about, about Joe McEwing, and here's the crazy thing, like, Jeff McNeil might be, if he can sustain what he's started to set, almost like the better, the, the, the like, Joe McEwing to the max. I see what you're saying. Um, I, I think... McNeil is – I get your point. I think McNeil is a better player. Um, I think he – you know, obviously he's a better hitter. He's cut from the cloth of being a starter. But their similarities are that they're guys who it's easy to look past. I mean, McNeil was looked past his whole career, right? He wasn't considered a prospect. They didn't want to call him up, what position, all that kind of stuff. Well, McEwing had all of that too. McEwing was this little guy, you know, who – didn't really have a position, but, you know, one of those, quote-unquote, nice, you know, guys like to have around kind of a thing. So I think the difference is, though, you know, uh, Jeff McNeil has more power. He's probably, or he is, a better hitter. And he has, although we're not quite sure where exactly his position is, they're going to find a spot for him, whereas uh, McEwing was really more of a, of a sort of like a super bench piece. You know, he never had enough talent to carve out a certain position for himself. But I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, Mike, what, what, what do you think about that, uh, that correlation? You know what? <laughs> I, I don't want to disparage anybody, but I, I, to me, he was like the second coming of Keith Miller, if anybody remembers him. I do. Uh, <laughs> and that's the way I see it, you know, and, and, Part of that has to do with, you know, the team turning a corner for the worse. And to me, you know, Keith Miller was emblematic of that, and Joe McEwing was emblematic of that. Uh, You know, when you start delving into these type of players on the other end of success, that's what sticks out. Unfortunately for me, when you mentioned McEwing, uh, you know, to me, the second incarnation of Keith Miller. Yeah, I'll have to look him up because I, I most certainly uh, don't know exactly who that is. And uh, I'm, I think I'm well versed in Mets history generally. But you know, when I, when I, I'm going to admit when I'm ignorant to it. You know, guys, we're we're coming up to uh, five minutes out of the hour, um, and uh, I think this would be a perfect time to start our uh, last word, but, um, you know, surreal would be mine. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish this.
Sam? Oh. Chris, what happened? We lost the CEO, the COO. We did. Hey, you know what? I'm, lo- I'm looking at the dashboard. We, in fact, did lose him. All right. So, I, well, I guess, you know, Mike, let me ask you this question before we do, uh, before we do last words. Has the thought that we might not have baseball at all this year, has that creeped into your head? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a baseball season is roughly 25 weeks long. And right. we know with great certainty that at least the first seven or eight will be compromised. And these capitalists are going to try to earn back every dollar that they can. Uh, but, you know, will the circumstances allow for it? I don't know, Rich. I don't know. You know what they always say, it gets worse before it gets better. I think we're only on the fringes of this thing, and we're going to start to learn more. Like we said last week, the great masses have not been tested yet. You know, but I have a problem with information. And there's a there's a lot of a shame, Rich, that I feel with the way things are being handled in this country. I mean, when Norway calls you a third-world country, A, they're right. B, you know, we have to we have to get our shit together. Uh, I'm you know, back. Because, <laughs> because Rich, uh, we're, we're, we're in one shape, way, or form, if not all the above, we're being cheated. We should be living in the age of the Jetsons, uh, yet we're not. And, and countries around us are making us look like Fools! Fools! That's all I'll say. You know, uh, it hit me. Hey, Sam, welcome back. W- what we're talking about is, has the possibility of no baseball crept into your head? And it hit me as a reality because when you start doing the math, I mean, up until about 10 days ago, I was thinking, all right, you know, they'll be back middle of May, you know, but, you know, you start seeing some of this stuff, you, you know, for for this voluntary, it's, it, it, to me, as far as I'm concerned, it is voluntary. Uh, social distancing, you know, and self-quarantining and all of that, because you could still go to the grocery store, you could still go out, so it's not like it's a law. Um, so for this stuff to actually have an effect, it, it's going to take, I think you can measure it in months, because, you know, you have to get everybody who's sick well, then you have to basically get to a point where this thing has no one left to, to infect, like the, the people who have it um, recover, and then they're while they're still sick, they're not around other people, and you have to try to put a stop to it. And that doesn't happen in a week. It doesn't happen in two weeks. So that's going to take time. And no. and so then, right? And so then, what time is it? I mean, you know, and when is it too late? Let, let me just, I know we wanted to end it, and I'll just, we could be real quick with this. What is the day that you think is the day, the day of no return? Like, it, Like if we don't have the... No more shelter in place. You know, we think this thing is is gone. What day is the last day that you think they could actually try to have a baseball season? I'm going to say it's I'm going to say it's July 1st because if it gets to a point where these guys have to go back to spring training, you know, go for a, a month, it's going to be at least three weeks. Start the season pushing August. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think July 1st is a good date because it gives you a summer. It gives you baseball in the summer, at least, you know, like that feeling of it. Um, that's, that's you know, what, what I think. Mike? 
I think it's fair. Uh, although I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but I do think that's a, a fair date. You know, I, more re- more realistically, they would have to start by mid-June. As Rich says, these guys need to build up to game speed, and that's going to require a couple of weeks, and then they need to figure out a schedule and a format. Uh, I guess we can look back to 1981, the strike-shortened season. Uh, you know, they played essentially two halves uh, and then uh, had a... Uh, you know they were ahead of their time at the uh, in that year with the playoff format, but you know they'll they'll have to figure something out. And, and if it gets too late and it becomes unfeasible, they might have to just scratch the whole thing. It's not out of the question. Hockey scrubbed the whole season uh, like 15 years ago. You know, but that was a labor dispute. But nevertheless, the season got scrubbed. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I still think this is very fluid and things are going to change as we speak. So I, I don't know, you know, all I know is that these capitalists are going to look to get this thing going as soon as they can. But then what's going to be the fan reaction? How are they going to respond? How are they, are, are, you know, attendance and, and, you know, getting back and, and, you know, breaking down social distancing over a beer at the at the at the ball game. I, I wonder. I wonder. You know? So they should expect the worst and hope for the best. You know, I I've been just been thinking that this is going to become uh like the psychological effect of this entire thing uh is that there's going to be more social distancing from now on. I mean doesn't that isn't that what it feels is that is that people are going to be thinking this type of way more, and I'll go to you, Rich. Well, yeah, I, I, that's my question. So my question is, well, first of all, I, I think a baseball opener will never have been so welcomed. I mean, people go crazy just to have it back. But then secondly, mm-hmm. you know, a year from now, 18 months from now, you're in a restaurant and you see somebody you haven't seen in a couple of years. You're going to shake the person's hand? You're going to hug them, her, whatever? Um, if I see, you know, when I see you guys at City Field or when I see some of the other, uh, you know, some of my other Mets friends at City Field, is it a handshake and a hug or is it, hey, what's going on, man? You know, and, a, and an arm bump. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 it's the, right? the arm bump right? becoming fashionable. Is that, is that, and is that going to be a permanent change? I mean, that's a big deal. Are we going to stop, you know, having close physical contact, and I, I mean, you know, in a, in a platonic way, shaking hands and having a beer together, you know, sitting at the bar, you know, where you're like a, a eight, eight inches from each other. Are we going to stop doing that? Because people are going to say, you know, remember the, the winter of 2020, you know, I'm not getting too close to you. Or Is that is that going to be a permanent change, or are we going to forget about it in time? I don't know. Packing stadiums is one of the things Americans do best. I will ask you this. Uh, what does a virus need most? People. That's a rhetorical question. Right, it needs a host. So I, I, I believe in the quarantine, uh, and I, I, I just want a little bit more conviction on from the, from the powers that be. But what does a virus need most? A host. Without a host, 
you render it impotent. Well, hopefully that happens soon because I'd like to get everything back to normal. Because right now the only normal is the uh, the fact that the uh, only places that are open, the only places that are working, are uh, feeding us and also keeping our lights on and uh, you know all those uh, different things that obviously are essential. Um, it, I, and you know, obviously, I think uh, companies are still running you know, the show, even if people are, are working, you know, at home uh, remotely, it is a time where this did drop just in time for many people to easily equip themselves to work from home. So the timing is, is crazy. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's something that we could literally just go in circles talking about, but I'm kind of ready to see what's next. And, uh, we certainly will be here having a show next week, uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, if the fates allow, as uh, uh, the is one of my favorite uh, lines in uh, the Christmas song, um, or have yourself a merry little Christmas, but that is uh, me going on a tangent to end this show. <laughs> but, it, you know, I, I, I know that um, we got cut off. It, it's funny that they cut me off. I, I think the powers that be were listening. And they were like, you know, it, it's surreal and this is all you're going to have. But I was happy that the show uh, kept going. Uh, I was a little worried there. Um, but I, I'm going to go one more round of last words. We'll keep it short. Thank you all for listening to a Messian podcast. You have been listening to a Messian podcast. Thanks to Frank Fleming for joining us tonight. Uh, Mike, I'm going to go uh, to you first. I I'm I believe I know what uh, you, I want your last word to be, and it starts with uh, a C, and you've already used it in uh, 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 some of your your, uh, your 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 thoughts regarding the power. Then you gotta then you gotta help me out. What what is it that you want me to broach? Conviction. 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 You know that's all I'm asking for. A little bit more conviction uh, on 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 our course of action. Uh, again, uh, what's going on is a complete embarrassment. It really is. Uh, and I don't want to get into all that tertiary minutiae. I really don't. I don't want to make this political, this, that, or the other. Because if I do, we're all going to be in trouble. Uh, and I try to, that's why I stay away from it on Twitter, on this podcast, etc., etc., etc. But, you know. The capitalists are going to want to put a clear, a clearly defined date on when this is going to end, and that's our problem. How much is it going to cost me? What am I going to lose? Blah blah blah. Money. Who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? It's all about the dollar signs here, and that's the American condition. You know, whereas in these other countries, who have different systems. And the government says shut it down. No questions asked. It gets shut down because you have people whose pensions come from the state. Their health care comes from the state, and their child care comes from the state, and all these things come from the state. Not all of it, but in a, in a semi-socialist system, you know, they have less less pressures on them than we do here. When the government declares do this, they comply. 
and perhaps that's why you see people on their balconies in Italy serenading each other. Because they're not worried about their pension because it's guaranteed by the state. Here, not so much. Everyone's in a different situation here. The conditions vary. Uh, but here in the land of capitalism, the capitalists want to put a time frame on everything, and they want clearly defined dates. Because if nothing else, corporate America demands predictability, be it profits or otherwise. They want to know down to the cent. So if we don't get across-the-board cooperation and effective government control of this situation, yeah, it'll deteriorate into a state of chaos. You know, because why? I have a philosophy, and that is Americans don't know what it's like to suffer. We don't know what it's like to sacrifice. We've never had another country come in and just obliterate our shit the kingdom come and having to recover from it. We've never been through that. Okay, people in Europe still have grandparents alive who've been through that. And parents who've escaped that. You know, so I want so much for the American mindset to just slightly readjust itself. And think about and I said it for the, I'm saying it for the third show in a row. Go to the store, leave something for the guy or girl behind. Everything's in place. Infrastructure's in place. Supply chains are ready to go. Nothing has been compromised. Everything is all set and in place and safe and operational. But Americans don't know what it's like to suffer. That's the American condition, and that is the American elitism. And I say that as a person who spent upwards of eight years of his life living outside this country, looking in. Spent three years in Europe. I spent three years in Argentina. I spent a year in South Korea. So perhaps I'm a little bit too experienced for my own good. But again, when Norway calls you a third world country, you goddamn better well fucking listen. I'm getting off my soapbox now. Rich, you know, uh, as I pass it on to your next last word, uh, I think that um, the only, I, I was thinking from the capitalistic standpoint of this, that if there was ever anything that could push us back into the 70s and 80s, and that, you know, that feeling of New York, maybe something like this would be it. If the powers that be don't do what is probably the ethical thing to do. Well, you know, I just want to jump on what Mike said. You know, we don't know how to suffer. We haven't, like he said. That's very true. We're not Europe. You know, we've never been overrun by another government or anything like that, and where that government imposed their will on us. So, you know, we we don't understand that. And I'll go one step further. We don't understand sacrifice. Not just that we don't understand sacrifice, because how many people are not doing the social distancing thing? There's a lot of them. 
right? Look, look at those kids in, in Florida as recently as a week ago. On the beach, you know, thousands of them, and the governor at that point refused to close the beaches, and he did now. That's capitalism coming in. Um, but it, it's not a hard thing to do. You know, you're being told that, look, for the wellness of, of people, your, maybe your grandma, maybe your mother, you know, whatever it is, um, stay the fuck home. You know, sacrifice something. Yeah, you know what? You don't necessarily have to get together with your friends this week or next week or the week after that. You don't have to do that. Sacrifice that for a short period of time so people don't get freaking sick and die. You know what I mean? Sacrifice something for the betterment of, some, of somebody else and maybe yourself. And, and that's the part that people aren't getting. And that's the part that drives me crazy is, you know, the, like Mike said, the government is asking, or they're not even really telling you. The National Guard's not going up and down the street telling you to get back in your house. They're, they're asking you to cooperate with this because we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a treatment. The only way to stop this thing is to give it fewer hosts, you know, to, to infect. Do it. Why are you struggling with this? What in the world is making you not do it? What's going through your head that you think you don't have to do this? That's my frustration. So I'm, I'm there with Mike. And then, you know, the, the very, the outgrowth of that, you know, I think, you know, our friend Michelle tweeted something today that I thought was so true. If we don't do social distancing the right way, the longer we're going to have to do it. And, you know, people, if this thing keeps spreading because people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's impacting your life, impacting my life. Um, it, it's taking away people's jobs, you know, all the unemployment claims and all that stuff. We've got to get this one right, folks. Um, getting our entertainment back is great, but before that, we have to get our lives back. And um, and you know, it only comes from cooperation. It's not that hard. That's my last word. You know, it it's uh, can't say it better myself. Uh, you know, it's it's tough for me because like I have to interact with people all day, and and so do many other people out there. Um, you know, there's people who have to stay at the nursing homes right now, and the nursing homes are, of course, uh, one of the more, uh, um, you, know, play, you know, places where this could this could really wreak havoc. So, you know, and and you got to give props to the uh, all those workers out there. I mean, there there's people like I'm delivering food. I'm, uh, you know, at this point, I was and, and last week I was driving people around to get to from point A to point B, which they still have to do. But you know, it, it's we all struggle with how to uh, cope with this. We all struggle with how to how to figure this entire thing out. And you know, I I I just hope that we can we can make it through. And and it's not that I don't have faith that we will. It's just that you see the way people uh, react to this. It's, everybody's going to be a little bit more wary going forward. And you know, you 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 have to keep. You you need to question things, but you also have to understand the repercussions of of continuing to you know party on the beach. Uh, you know it's funny, and I'll leave it with this. When when you said it like that, it just reminded me. It's like the mayor in Jaws, guys. It's just like, well, yeah, well how, what are we supposed to do? It's July Fourth, <laughs> and that's my last word. Don't be like. The mayor in Jaws. Ladies and That's gentlemen, thank you example. so much. That's a great example. <laughs> what was that? Like? Really That's a great example. Thank you. 
Much appreciated. The mayor uh, and Josh. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, uh, <laughs> this. This is this is so crazy. Uh, like I'm going to tangent again before I thank you for joining a Mexican podcast tonight. Um, uh, I saw a meme once that said the the mayor in Jaws 2 was the same mayor in Jaws 1. Elections matter. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to a Messian podcast. The only way we can ever we the, the only way we can ever leave this and hopefully we get to say it to the Mets very, very soon. Rich, Mike, both of you go ahead. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go, Let's Mets. Let's go, Mets, folks. Let's go, Mets. We'll see you back here next week. May I, may, may I make one more shout-out before we uh, get off the air? Shameless plug? No, not necessarily shameless. I just want to, you know, shout-out to everybody out on Mets' Twitter, you know. All the interaction, it's actually kind of fun with lack of baseball yeah. and lack of sports. Uh, the interaction has been good. Keep it up. Twitter friends, you know. Uh, you're amongst friends. You're all loved. So keep it up. Shameless plug indeed to hashtag Mets Twitter. You guys keep us going strong. Thank you so much for tuning in every single week. Let's go Mets, folks. Take care, everybody. Get through this. Be safe and be healthy. Good night. Good night.